Good morning. In this month's issue of Table Talk magazine, Robert Godfrey, a pastor and teacher, wrote an article entitled Defining Pride and Humility. And within this article, Godfrey opened my eyes to see the many ways my pursuit of humility could actually become a vice. Actually could become a sin. And then I started thinking to myself, how can a virtue, something like humility, a God-honoring, scripture-commanded virtue, possibly become a sin category that now I have to deal with? Well, Godfrey argues that when our humility becomes centered on self, then we have warped that which is actually good. Just listen to Godfrey explain this idea. He says, pretended humility is pride wearing a disguise. For example, a well-known pastor might say, I never thought I could write five books in the span of a year, but I'm just thankful that my family supported me throughout this difficult, difficult task. At first glance, this statement could sound humble, but in reality, it might be less about showing thankfulness and more about promoting the accomplishment and looking for a claim. Now, what's my point in taking the wind out of all of our sails this early this morning? Well, as Jonathan Edwards once said, pride takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there's another underneath. Therefore, we need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to this matter, and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help. He who trusts his own heart is a fool. So my point is that we're foolish. We're foolish to believe that we can actually see all of the crevices of pride well enough in our own hearts to proclaim, I've got it covered. I'm done with it. I've got all of this figured out. No, no, we misunderstand the significance and severity of our sin. Pride is poison that will not curb all until it has finished the job. So with a new year comes new opportunities to excel still more in our pursuit of humility. Because we all struggle with the same fundamental problem, and that's pride. We actually place ourselves, if we like to admit it or not, we place ourselves in positions of honor where God alone is worthy to sit. We're prone to build up self-centered kingdoms rather than being enthralled by the kingdom of God. But by God's grace, the people of God are given power. Power to walk in humility. So walking in the same manner of life as the Lord Jesus. But first we must identify the poison in our own lives. And then we must look to the antidote. We must look to the Lord Jesus who is a picture of humility. And in so doing, we find grace to help in time of need. Not only to be forgiven of our pride, but empowered and emboldened to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt us at the proper time alongside the Lord Jesus. And so with that said, turn with me this morning to Proverbs chapter 15. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage this morning 
in, in uh, Proverbs 15. And while you turn there, notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, the poison of pride. Number two, the practice of humility. And number three, death to pride. So this morning, we do begin by looking at exactly what the poison of pride is because we must be aware of God's view on it and how wicked it is before we can actually ever grasp our need to put pride to death in our lives and then walk in humility. And so out of our passion to know and obey the Lord should flow a hatred for what God hates. So in that, let's read Proverbs chapter 15, starting in verse 25. It says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Now, in order to unpack the pervasiveness of pride, it's essential that we understand exactly what pride is. So pride is when sinful people aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their total dependence on him. So it's self-centeredness at its core, and there's a desire for self-glorification. That's the end result, that I, me, myself, and I would be glorified. So the proud seek to lift themselves up in worship rather than worshiping God. And without even realizing it, the person has attempted unsuccessfully to usurp God from the throne that he alone is worthy to receive. Now, as we begin to look at this proverb, it's important for us to notice here that there are bookends that are found in verses 25 through 33. So just look again at how the section begins in verse 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. So that's the first bookend that we see here. And then in verse 33, he ends by stating, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. So to begin and end this section comes the clear theme of verses 25 through 33. Humility is a healthy fear of the Lord. They're synonymous. But what we should be quick to notice is that in verses 25 through 33, the author not only identifies humility as really, really important, but then displays the pervasiveness of sin. And he does this by illustrating several different ways in which pride actually manifests itself in the human heart. Right? So we see it in a few different areas. Number one, our thoughts. Two, our motivations. And three, in our speech. So just look with me to actually see it in the text. Right? Verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Right? So man's thinking the proud man's thinking. Notice way, the way in which the wicked think contrary to what actually God desires. 
In, in fact, the thinking of these people are an abomination to him. He hates it. So they're completely contrary to the Lord, and they're connected to judgment rather than blessing. Right? So that's the first. Then look at verse 27. He says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. So here we have the proud man's motivations, namely his greed. They yearn for more and more. It's not enough. They're motivated by the extravagant. Now, do you hear the proud language of the greedy? What's the purpose of their gain here? It's unjust gain. That's exactly what he says. And what's the result of this desire, this motivation? Well, it's at the expense of others. Specifically, it's actually causing trouble for his own home. This guy's way out of line. So there's a lack of care, a lack of even awareness of the damage of his motivations because they are selfishly driven. And then verse 28. It says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So the proud are wicked in their speech. It's it's their mouths, their speech is connected with their pride. Notice the contrast. Those who fear the Lord, those who are humble, they ponder how to answer someone, right? They're cautious. They think before they speak. But what about the wicked? What about the proud? Well, they pour out evil things with their lips, right? They're just letting it fly. They're just spewing out evil thoughts. There's no thoughtfulness in their speech. There's a lack of love in what they say. They aren't thinking about other people. They're hateful with their words, whether they like to admit it or not. Now, what do you think the takeaway from these three verses and the relationship that it has to do with pride? What's the relationship here? Well, here it is. Pride stains everything. It dismantles our thinking, our motivations, and our speech. The proud are willing to think, to say, and do whatever it takes to place themselves on the throne of their own kingdom. But the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is how does pride manifest itself in our own hearts and minds? Right? If it's that pervasive... It hasn't just skipped over our church, right? It's an issue that we must deal with. And so if we are too nebulous with this category, right, even in thinking through this question, then we miss the opportunity for us at Christ Proclamation Church to see God work in our hearts to whittle away pride. So how do you speak of the sins and faults of others? Are you more introspective of the sins of those around you rather than your own sin? Are you critical for criticism's sake? Are you bothered by the mere asking of help after a long day at work? Are you quick to grumble? Are you easily offended when given feedback? Do you find yourself daydreaming about past accomplishments, trophies, or pats on the back? Are your good deeds followed by clamors of cymbals and gongs or followed with silence? Each question here that I've just listed off that has smacked me across the face all week, each of them gets at the pervasiveness of our sin. 
the pervasiveness of our pride. It's entirely laced in all functions of life. It's in our thoughts. It's in our motivations. It's in our speech. All of it is absolutely everywhere. It's a problem. And like a king cobra that sinks its venomous teeth deep into the skin of its prey, pride leaves us for dead. Because pride is poison that looks to kill the soul. I mean, do we actually understand that there will be no, not one, proud person in all of heaven? Not one. Only humility will reign in those who enjoy the king. Because God hates the proud and gives grace to the humble. But the writer is so helpful here. Because not only are we seeing here the pervasiveness of pride, but Paul, but Paul, but the author gives us B, the Lord's response to pride. And what does God think about this sin? What does God think about pride? He hates it. He absolutely hates it. Just listen to the resounding theme of God's disposition towards pride. It's repeated three times in the Proverbs, in, in verses 25 through 33. Right? Verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Verse 29, the Lord is far, far from the wicked. So the Lord is an enemy to those who are proud because it's in complete opposition to his nature. I mean, do you just hear the language that's associated with these people, right? Tear down, abomination. The Lord is far from them. It can all be boiled down to one simple word, judgment. Judgment is the word that God connects to pride. That's the end result for the proud. It's death. And like I just said, there will be no proud people in heaven. Now, this is not just a theme from this one passage in Proverbs, but it's actually the sentiment of the entire Bible, right? We're quite familiar with James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It couldn't be any clearer, could it? God hates the proud heart. So the overarching idea that Proverbs 15 communicates this morning is that there can't be room in the heart of the follower of God for pride. There's no room. And that's because it's in total opposition to the very fabric of who God is and who he calls his people to be. So pride is poison. And it must be eradicated from the Christian. It's like a tornado on the doorstep of a glass house. Pride has the power to shatter our relationships and pollute the truth of who we are and who God is. But praise the Lord, because there's an antidote to the poison of pride, isn't there? Yes, there is. And it is humility. A theologian once said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. And so the question begs to be answered. What is it? What is humility, and what does that look like? And so in order to answer these questions together, let's turn to Mark chapter 10, because it gives us, number two, a picture of humility. As you turn there, it's helpful to know where we are in the book of Mark. 
So Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and the Lord has already made his third prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection, right? And what follows is a lesson in discipleship, specifically for James and John, right? The sons of Zebedee. So we are going to read in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35 through 45. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now just imagine this scene for a moment with me, right? You have the 12 disciples and Jesus, they're traveling toward Jerusalem as Jesus is preparing the way for his expected and eventual death, and he has already predicted his death three times, right? It would be for their salvation. He's quite clear. The last of these predictions being in just in verse 33, right? It said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I mean, talk about details here. He not only testifies of his betrayal, his death, his burial, his resurrection, but for crying out loud, he even tells these guys that he's going to get spit in the face. And all the while, what are these two guys, James and John, doing? They're thinking about their position and God's kingdom. I mean, they're contemplating future events that they know are connected to the Messiah. I mean, they're good Jewish boys. They know that the Messiah will reign in glory. So what are they doing? They ask Jesus for seats close to the king. So they ask to sit at the right and the left of the Son of Man, which is an incredible ask, isn't it? To even think that you're worthy of the spot. And they're just jumping right at the opportunity to go to the king and ask. And they ask him right in front of the 10 other disciples, right? You have the inward proud and you have the external guys. You have these two externally proud guys who are just walking right up. The rest of the 10 are watching this whole show unfold. They're going the same place. I mean, at least keep that kind of meeting somewhere private, right? No, the public nature of this very event only highlights the significance of their pride. But what does Jesus do? 
Well, he gives James and John an answer that's not what they even have in mind. The first answer Jesus gives, of course, and it's really funny, a question. Right? Look at verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. That's always kind of fun, kind of fun to hear, right? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, let's just pause here. Right? What on earth does baptism in a cup have to do with me and this guy, right? Brothers sitting at the right and the left of God in future glory. Well, it's clearly connected to the prediction that Jesus has just made. He's recalling once again the predictions of his humiliation, his suffering, and his death. And saying, yeah, you are going to be just like me. Right? But look at their reply. These men understand, at least in some degree, what Jesus is saying. They can follow along with the logic of the statement, right? You endure the hardship, you stay with me, you stand firm with me, you get the seats of honor. So they're on board. They give this emphatic, yes, we are able, right, in verse 39. Which is then when we see Jesus declare that the Father is the one who exalts. It's not up to the Son. The the Father is the one who exalts the humble. He is the one who is going to exalt the Lord Jesus, the one who will be humiliated, who will suffer and die. But so when Jesus actually declares this to James and John, what does the text tell us? The other ten are listening, and they become to get indignant. They're indignant with the two, meaning they're really ticked off. They're not very happy because actually it probably is displaying their own desires. They're just not dumb enough to express it out loud, right? They're just not that foolish to be vocal in that specific instance. But just notice how the Lord replies. So tender, a good shepherd. He draws the disciples together. And then, I mean, he absolutely just pulls the softball bat up and just wails him with one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible about it, what it looks like to truly be a disciple that is humble. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So in essence, Jesus declares that those who seek greatness in Jesus' kingdom must look for it where he alone has placed it. Where is that? Where has he placed it? It's in the service of others. According to verse 43, true disciples of Jesus look like something that the world doesn't recognize and corrupt rulers can't fathom it. True disciples, those who are truly great in the kingdom, they don't lord it over others, as Jesus says in verse 42. But the contrast, they're servants, they're slaves of all. That's the real greatness in the kingdom. Robert Stein, a New Testament scholar, unpacks the link between greatness and humility. And listen to what he says. He says, Greatness in the kingdom of God does not involve public honor and the authority to command others but humble, unrewarded service. So greatness in this kingdom, the seat of honor in the kingdom of God, is attributed to the one who is willing to give the seat up. That's who the greatest is. Now can you imagine 
being one of those disciples. They're waiting with bated breath, right, for those 10 easy steps to humility in the kingdom in order to sit right next to the Lord Jesus in the place of honor. And Jesus says to them, greatness in this kingdom looks like being a slave. It's astounding, this verse. Yeah, you're going to walk with me for three years and be persecuted. And then, yeah, when you're a slave, then you are truly free. Then you are truly great in the kingdom. That's where honor is. This is foundational to our understanding of the biblical understanding of humility. Humility is rooted in the forgetfulness of our own well wishes, in the desire to serve rather than be served. It's service without hesitation or reservation. It expects nothing. It assumes nothing. It cares less about man's applause and more about the burdens of others. It isn't self-serving, but it's self-sacrificing. It isn't self-depreciating. It isn't even indentured servanthood. It is purposeful. It is intentional. It is God-honoring humility. That is the essence of what Jesus declares and what Jesus displays. And how do we know this to be true? Just look with me at verse 45. Jesus gives the anchor that free his disciples to willingly become slaves of all, right? Jesus gives us a glimpse of B, the epitome of humility. Verse 45 declares, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's the anchor of his charge to the disciples? It's to look to the Son of God. But who is this Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man that Jesus declares here? It's himself. It's the Lord Jesus himself, which is a direct connection to the Son of Man spoken of in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, right? which says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that's the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And do you catch the significance of this language from Daniel in Mark 10? Jesus isn't a fool, right? He's, he knows that the Son of Man language causes all these kinds of bells to ring in the heads of every Jewish person in the entire world. And what does he do? He flips their understanding of that kingship, of the Messiah, of the Son of Man on its head. So Daniel's clear, right? The Son of Man will have a dominion, power, and blessing. This king will be served. But what does Jesus do? What does he say in Mark 10? The Son of Man has come, and I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a payment for many. So the greatest display of servanthood ever to grace this earth is bottled up in the life, humiliation, and death of the Lord Jesus. I mean, talk about radical discipleship. Jesus takes the difficult charge to his disciples and says, I'm calling you to die to yourself. 
that you be made low to truly be the greatest in the kingdom. Right? He's not letting them dry here. He gives them exactly the answer that they're looking for. But notice that what he gives them. He says that the king of kings, Jesus himself, he calls his people to humility in the footsteps of his own humiliation. Just think about it. Right? Not just in the ransoming of sinners, but think about his entire life. Life of true humility. He left the throne of heaven. And he dwelled among mere men, born in a manger, the offspring of pagans and prostitutes, healing lepers with bare hands, dining with the lowest of the low, tending to the woman at the well, feeding the 5,000. And when he was reviled and rejected by men, what happened? He remained humble in his speech and conduct. And of course, the Son of Man was nailed to a cross and slaughtered for the sins of his people, made a ransom for many. And so Jesus is the epitome of humility. And this very humility that Jesus calls and commands not only the 12 disciples to, but all of his blood-bought disciples, this is what we're called to. This is Jesus' commands for us. We are called to walk in radical, God-glorifying, others-oriented humility for his namesake for all of our days until we are reunited with him in his presence forevermore. That's the call. And so we come to this point in the sermon where we must start to think through this question. What now? Where do we go from here, right? We see this wicked thing called pride. And it's pervasive. And we see the epitome of humility. And so now, how do we live as his people? We know that Jesus clearly has called his followers to servanthood rather than a posture of pride. But what do we actually do? Well, we must put to death pride And we need strategies to fight by God's grace and by the power of God's spirit. And so there are two necessary functions for us in our fight to put pride to death. And so first, we must look to the humble one. We must look to the Lord Jesus himself. And secondly, we must die to ourselves and then live for the good of others, for the glory of God's name. And so in order for us to see this for ourselves, I want us to look and see through the lens of Philippians chapter 2, which gives us some clear practicalities of humility as the, at the foot of the cross. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Familiar passage, but essential for our understanding and for our fight against pride in our hearts. So Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 3. And so Paul is looking to display the believer's necessity of putting pride to death. And so he writes this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours In Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So A, we first look to the humble one. Now in verses 3 through 5, there are some clear imperatives that we must look at, and we're going to in a moment. But first, in our fight to put death to pride, we must look to the humble one. We must look to the Lord Jesus. He's the model of true humility. And in so doing, we not only see the Lord Jesus clearly, but we see ourselves all the more clearly. Right? Notice what Paul tells us of the humility of Christ. The Son of God. Right, The one in perfect bliss and equality as very God made himself low. In fact, Paul uses the phrase in verse 7, he emptied himself. So not to say that he's any less God. No, he was poured out by becoming a servant in bodily form. And not only that, God, a very God, truly man. But in verse 8, tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the greatest display of humility ever imaginable comes at the expense of the death of the Son of God in the place of sinners like you and me. That's where it comes. Without hesitation, without reservation, caring less about man's applause and more about the burdens of sinners. Right? Self-sacrificing. And what was the end result for King Jesus? Not eternal death. No, it's resurrection and then exaltation. The greatest in the kingdom, being made the least of all, to then be eternally lifted up as the exalted Son Most High. But so what? Why does that matter? How does looking to Jesus help my fight to put the death in my heart? Uh, Because if we look to the truly humble one, if we look to the Lord Jesus who endured our sin and shame, we see all the more clearly his sufficiency and our inadequacy. So when we contemplate our fragility, the fact that we are devastatingly wicked apart from Christ and he humbled himself and died our death, then we must recognize that any and all things that are good in us are not stemming from our innate beauty, but his abundant mercy. Anything heartwarming in us is an outworking of Christ's shed blood. Anything worthy of imitation is an overflow of the water of God's grace in Christ toward us. The one who humbly came, lived, died, buried, and rose again, that we, that we, the people of God, might live eternally with the Lord Jesus forever. Basking in his goodness. The fact of the matter is this, brothers and sisters. Jesus' death in our place, obliterates any opportunity for us to applause our merits, our talents, our abilities, or our judgments. One long-lasting look, one spirit-empowered look at the sacrificial lamb brings his children, brings the people of God to their knees. The rightful place of his disciples Is that you this morning? If any of you stand outside of Christ at this very moment, you're living on your own merits. In fact, you stand now in pride in a seat directly in opposition 
to the king of glory. It's a horrible place to be. You believe that your own deeds, your smarts can save you, that you don't need a savior. And my goodness, you couldn't be more wrong. The Bible is very clear. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride comes before destruction. Do you hear that language? Standing on your own merit and living in direct opposition to Christ the King is a tragic way to live your life because we live in waiting for Christ's return. And when he appears, he will judge both the living and the dead. And so I appeal to you that you must turn from your prideful ways that you must turn and you must trust and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, the one who humbly came to die the death that you most certainly deserve to die and find rest for your souls and the only one who can do it with freedom to stand not in your own strength for all of eternity, but in the strength that only Christ provides. Let that be today. Don't gather another moment in your own pride, and wickedness. So not only must we look to the Lord Jesus and see his beautiful example in our feebleness in light of his saving work, but because of it, we then look to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God by doing two things by the power of God's spirit, by dying to self and living for the good of others. So let's just read once again Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So number one, we must die to self. Right, Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We must count others more significant than ourselves. Now, let's just be clear. It's not because we're not important people. right? That Not that we don't have value. Right, We're created in the image and likeness of God. That's certainly true. But in a similar manner to the Lord Jesus, we are to lay aside our desire to live solely for our own ambitions. It's contrary to the word of God. And so the question that the people of God must ask ourselves right now is, are you willing to die? Are you willing to die to yourself for the good of others? George Mueller, the famous prayer warrior, once said this, there was a day when I died. Died to self, my opinions, my preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Now, it's easy to hear a quote like that. It's easy to hear all that kind of stuff and say, yeah, I want to live like that. <laughs> That'd be great. Amen. Let's move forward. But when I'm in a conversation or in a situation that I'm fighting to die to self and put off selfish ambition and conceit, what are the actual practical ways that I'm going to pursue death to self for the sake of the good of others and truly be one who is humble? I think there are a few things that I try and think through, if I'm thinking clearly, right? 
Number one, reciting scripture, memorizing the Bible. Philippians 2 is my go-to for pride because I think it's really helpful for, for myself. Number two, ask yourself the hard question. At this very moment, who is on the throne of my heart? And if the answer is king or queen, insert name here, right? then there's need for a shift in your perspective. If you're the king of the story, eh, wrong answer, keep moving. And number three, recall your salvation. You were dead. You were undeserving of grace, and Christ saved you. And that will radically change your perspective quickly. It must. And then move forward without grasping onto your judgments, your opinions, your IQ score, your preferences, all for the sake of holiness and for the glory of God's name. And so number two, we must live for the good of others. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So true humility, according to Paul, looks not to one's own interests, but is others-oriented, others-minded. You look beyond your own circumstances and you live for their good which is several application points for us, doesn't it? It could simply look like taking the garbage out for your spouse when you would much rather just sit on the couch, open up a bag of chips, and watch the big game. Or in a conversation, looking for opportunities to ask questions rather than filling the time with stories of your own accomplishments. Actually, truly engaging with a goal to know and love and care for those that you're interacting with, or generously giving of your time and resources, or making meals after already making one for your own family, or simply driving someone to an appointment when they're not able. I mean, all of these examples seem meaningless right here, right now, right? It's it's difficult to think about all the hypothetical opportunities. But when your place When you place your talents and your time up against these examples, then that's when things get really real, right? So are we willing to truly live a humble life? Are we willing to put others before ourselves, to follow in the footsteps of the Savior? Are we willing to live in the same manner of the humility that Christ displayed in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, as I said earlier, pride is poison. It's more slippery than we probably even realize, and it needs to be put to death. But be encouraged, brothers and sisters. We have hope this morning. And how do I know that to be true? I just want us to look at verse 5. Such an encouragement to my heart when I'm struggling to be humble. Look what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, dear believer, do you see Paul's encouraging words? He's giving us hope. Have this mind, the mind of humility, death to self, living for the good of others. Have that mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. So those 
who have put their faith in Christ alone are able by God's power to pursue humility for the glory of God because it is yours in him. It's not because of your works. It's not because your ability to put off your, your sin of humility, of pride. It's because of what Christ has done that we now can go by faith and in God's power to be humble, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that one day he will exalt us to the right hand and to the left of the Father on high, reigning with Christ with pleasures forevermore until forever. (laughs) That's glorious news. May God give us the grace to fully comprehend the beauty of what our closing song declares for us this morning. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing what? All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So I pray we as the people of God are empowered to humble ourselves for the good of others and for the glory of his name because Christ has accomplished it for us in and through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our hope is only in Jesus And our life is now wholly bound to his. And now we have the power by God's spirit to put off pride and to walk in humility all our days. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would do just that, that we would have a desire to not only be like the Lord Jesus, but actually that it would look like something that we would truly live all of our days in submission to him and his commands for us. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace when we fail, but that we continue all the more, that we would excel still more this year in 2022 for your glory alone. And so we ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.